0: This is the end of retail as we know it.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 16, and today's guest is Pano Anthos, founder and managing director of XRC Labs. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today's guest is Pano Anthos, founder and managing director of XRC Labs. XRC Labs is an innovation accelerator and fund for the next generation of disruptors in the retail and consumer goods sectors. Their vision is to be the preeminent ecosystem where innovation happens to solve the biggest challenges and unlock the next generation of opportunities facing the retail and consumer goods industries. Pano, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.
1: All right. Well, I, I know you're busy and uh, there's, there's lots going on. Uh, we're recording this in in mid-June uh, 2020. So before we get into it, how are you and your family doing uh, over these uh, last few months of, of quarantine?
0: Yeah, I know we've been very uh, fortunate. We're um, kind of domiciled, ensconced in upstate New York, uh, kind of out of harm's way, um, but very active with our team uh, on a completely remote basis.
1: Okay, good. Well, I'm glad that everybody's well. Um, I like to start these shows, um, you know, we all have uh, this, you know, our first story, kind of how we grew up, family life, uh, perhaps how that prepared us for the, you know, the roles that we've played in in most of our career. So give us a a, a brief background of of that part of your life.
0: Well, I mean, I, you know, I I came from a very stable family, Uh, Greek, Greek parents, uh, first generation, uh, they were born here. Father was an entrepreneur, wasn't well educated, barely got an associate's degree, had all kinds of probably learning disabilities that were never diagnosed. But he was very scrappy. He was a sales guy. He moved from business to business, always kept us fed and watered, so to speak, and clothed. And, um, you know, he was a, ten- a nationally ranked tennis player. And so I picked up the game and I was quite competitive. I remain competitive, not in tennis, but competitive in life uh, still today. Very much uh, tennis is a very, lonely sports, not a team sport. So you, you learn very quickly as we have as you know, entrepreneurs that um, being an entrepreneur is a very lonely existence, right? You, there, a lot of this is on, on you. And so, you know, did, did school, uh, college, uh, graduate school and then started my first company in 1983, uh, believing that the international trade sector would grow dramatically uh, over the next 20, 30 years, which of course it has. Um, And we built technology to automate that business. That was my first company. Masayoshi-san was ultimately an investor in that, the guy from SoftBank. Sold uh, my stake in that, moved on. uh, Started a company up in Boston in the integration space because technology uh, we found with applications, SAP, all these oracles and so forth that were running around out there, that integration was the number one barrier to use, not the application itself. And then got into gaming, uh, built a gaming company because I saw that gaming was the future, uh, was the first customer for now, a soon to go public company called Unity. And um, in the gaming process realized that, you know, it's all about metrics and numbers. And that's what got me to start XRC, which is another conversation I'm sure we'll have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you're a a, a tennis guy, so we're not gonna see you at the US Open if they have it?
0: No. No, I gave that up a long time ago. I'm on, I'm on, see, once you're, a, and again, I'm not going to make myself, I played college tennis in college, but once you play at a certain level and you can't play at that level anymore, it's very hard to play at a lower level. And I just, I am I was too frustrated when I would pick up a racket, um, you know, even five, 10 years after I stopped playing competitively, it just was no fun because I remembered what I could do and I couldn't do it anymore. So it's kind of, it was a kind of a, Uh, I'm just moved on, you know, and an entrepreneur, you know, sometimes you're, you're told, you know, if a company fails in a category for whatever reason, move on and and go after a different category with a fresh pair of eyes and and go after something different. So I've, I've picked up different sports and, and different activities. That's for sure.
1: All right. You, you talked about, you know, entrepreneurs being lonely in, in the days we, we live today. How do entrepreneurs get their, their guidance and their, to thwart that loneliness that you talk about? Do do they, you know, they, they sometimes have co-founders, they have mentors. Um, what what have you seen be effective for, for the entrepreneur?
0: Well, yeah, it's an ecosystem, you know, just like XRC has created an ecosystem for entrepreneurs. I, I didn't have an ecosystem growing up. In fact, most people had no idea what I did, even at the kids' schools we were at. And in fact, 20 years later, people would say, you know, I never realized that you were an entrepreneur. I had no idea what that was. So it was a very lonely existence. I think today, the resources, the content that's available, like if, you, if you're a bad entrepreneur, if your company fails, it can fail for many reasons, but it should never fail for lack of information and, and access and resources. It might fail because of timing. You're, you've got too big of an idea or too interesting an idea that's just not ready for prime time yet. The customer isn't ready for it. That happens a lot. You build stuff that's way too early. VR is an example where, you know, no one's making money in VR. Um, And many people have lost a lot of money in VR because virtual reality is just not, consumer doesn't really care for it yet. And the footprint of the goggles and everything else is not, you know, small enough to make it accessible. Um, But information is at your fingertips. And so startups now, founders have ecosystems. they got mentor networks. They've got Slack channels that they can talk about stuff with. They've got all kinds of groups. There's really no end of information. In fact, it can be overwhelming, um, but there's no end of information to keep you from being entirely lonely. Now, the loneliness isn't making decisions because no one can make the decision for you. So for example, around COVID, people had to make decisions about teams, how many to keep, who to let go. Um, those decisions can only be made by one person. They're not a group decision. There's group counsel. Go board, your advisory committee, they'd say, well, I think maybe this, and I think maybe that. But at the end of the day, the founder CEO is the one who has to make the call. And that's pretty lonely. All right.
1: And so you you were this entrepreneur. And then at, at, when did you have the the idea for uh, the XRC labs? And, and maybe you know tell our listeners what XRC is, who the organizations are that founded it, and, and we'll go from there.
0: So XRC Labs is, is essentially a very, 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 very early stage venture fund. And it's called an accelerator because what it does is it puts a little bit of money into a lot of companies, kind of like feeding a garden and hoping things grow. And you water it and you fertilize it and you do things. But at the end of the day, you can't control whether the plant grows or not. You just try to create an environment that fosters growth. The way we got started was I had been mentoring um, at Techstars and a bunch of other places, other accelerators in Boston. And what got me onto retail, because I don't have a retail background at all. I don't even know what a planogram looks like. And I'm perfectly candid about it. It's it's actually been a, an advantage not to have a lot of bias walking into this, because I can ask questions that, frankly, other people just are almost too embarrassed to ask. But I can ask, you know, come across because I really don't know. So my wife went back, uh, she had a big job at Children's Television Workshop and had a long career at retail prior to that. So she was at Children's Place, J.C. JCPenney, and she ended up as a product, had a product development at Children's Television Workshop. Great job. She stepped down to, to raise our family and sacrificed a lot in doing that. And then well, some of the years later decided she wanted to go back and do, you know do something engaging liked retail but didn't want to work you know like that hard so I took over a small boutique in the town that we lived in in Wellesley Massachusetts at the time and uh it was a new store a brand new store and she had not been in a retail store in years and years and years it'd be like the equivalent of a COBOL programmer trying to code in Python and never having seen it right so she took over the store and I said well how are you doing it she said I'm fine I'm like how's that possible? It's been many, many years and lots of technology shifts and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, nothing's changed since I was a teenager. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, no, literally point of sale is the same. Yeah, it's got some screens, but you know, merchandising is the same. Product assortment's the same. There's really no change here at all. Markdowns are still done manually. I'm like, you're kidding me. And she said, no. I'm like, okay, that's, that's absurd. I mean, here we've got all this technology, you know, built over 30 plus 40 years. We've got iPhones, we got all kinds of stuff, and you're still doing stuff the way you did it back in the 80s. And she said, "Yeah." And so I said, "All right." So that that just a step it just really jarred me, and I'm like, "That can't." A, it's either not true, which it was true, of course, or B, it can't stay this way for long. And around the same time, I was consulting to a consulting firm, Kurt Salmon, in fact on digital because I came out of a gaming world. And so analytics and game gaming really go hand in hand. And I was applying that analytics expertise to help Kurt Salmon on the digital front. And I'll never forget that. um, I walked into a bed bath and beyond and I don't remember the year, but it was around around Christmas and Amazon had just released its mobile app and the Amazon app could scan the barcode and tell you the price of the product. And more importantly, you could do one click off if you were an Amazon Prime customer and have the product shipped to you. So I said, you know, I'm always the first to try stuff. So I said, all right, let me try this. So I tried it, and I looked at the Amazon price for a toothbrush, electric toothbrush, and then I looked at the Bed Bath Beyond price, and the difference was literally double. Like Amazon was half the price of this Bed Bath and Beyond price. And so I hit one click, and I bought it. And of course, the product was shipped in my house two days later. And I said. This is the end of retail as we know it. Like there's just no way this is going to stand longer where the price discrepancy is this substantial. And if it's not that substantial retail's really in trouble because they won't have the margin to stay in business around the same time. I, I then ran back to the Kurt Salmon team and executives. And I said, you got to really be aware of this. Like, I don't know if you've seen, cause I, the app had just come out. And no one knew about the scan and go thing at all. Scan capability didn't exist really anywhere else. Amazon really pioneered it. And by the way, it could also take a picture of a box. You didn't have to just get the barcode. You could just scan the box image with your, with your phone, and it would also pick up the product. And it was very accurate. I was just stunned. So I told the executives this, and they said, well, you know, I'm sitting down with the, the CEO of Target for dinner. Let me ask him what he thinks. And so, And it was around that same time that he got published in the Wall Street Journal and said, this thing called showrooming, we are going to kill it. We are going to change our barcodes. We're gonna tell our manufacturers, reorient the boxes. No consumer, Amazon will not be able to, you know, kind of compete with us in this area. And I and I had no experience in retail, but I said to the Kurt Salmon executives, by the way, that target CEO is no longer there. Not, it's not Brian Cornell, it was pre-Brian. And I said, that guy is like, he's completely out to lunch. He has no idea how far the consumer is ahead of him. I mean, this is, this is absurd. Because if it's not the exact barcode, the consumer will type in, you know, electric toothbrush on Amazon and they'll, they'll take five extra steps. But Amazon is just trying to make it as easy as possible to basically price compete and ship. He said, Oh, we're going to kill it. We're going to, the consumer will never, you know, this, this will never happen. And I said, Wow. So not only do we have technology that's really outdated in these stores, but we have executives who have no clue how far the consumer is ahead of them. This is going to be a train wreck. And this was in 2014, 2013, 14. And so I started formulating, I said this, and then the third piece was, I'd seen some HBS professor write something that said, basically we're overstored by 50% compared to Europe. This can't last. So I said, all right, we got a perfect storm here. we got a consumer that's way ahead of the customer and executives who don't have a clue of who the consumer is. We've got way too many stores and so therefore too much inventory. And we've got Amazon literally, and no one was believing it, that Amazon was a serious threat, literally eating them for lunch like Pac-Man. I'm like, this is going to be a bloodbath. So I said, well, it's gonna be a bloodbath. How do I take advantage of it? And I've always tend to invest and um, start companies kind of in lots of turbulence. Uh, And I won't bore you with all the details, but I've always been very, very early. I was early in supply chain. I had the first global logistics systems back in 88, 89, up through 2000, doing stuff that now is considered standard practice. Again, first in the gaming community to have really immersive games in 3D on Facebook, first in the integration space that now is, you know, MuleSoft and others. So I said, I want to be first this time, but I don't want to be first with a startup. I want to be first in a number of startups. So I decided to start this accelerator and around the same time as I was kind of hatching this idea, the team at Kurt Salmon said, hey, we'd love to help you on this because <clears throat> we think corporate retailers are behind and don't get it. But if they can see the innovation, maybe they will, you know, support it. They said, we can't really, you know, we're not investors, but we can help you and build an ecosystem. And so that's literally what they did. At the same time, one of the partners at Kurt Salmon was having lunch with the Dean of Parsons this, and he's on the board of Parsons, and he described this idea, and the Dean immediately emailed and said, "I need to meet with you. This sounds really intriguing." And so we set up this kind of triumvirate partnership um whereby Parsons would provide space and branding um, in return for access to all these startups and a conduit for their students to get involved as well as our faculty members, and to actually claim some branding, which they did very effectively on. Gert Salmon got obviously um, a way to to open up the door of the C-suite and say, you gotta look at this next generation concepts. These are all state of the art, three to five years out. And I would say, and we've had very good success, we're now invested in over 80 companies in the last four years, we do about 20 a year. We may amp it up to 30 a year next year. And what we noticed was that the corporates, there was really, they were a mixed bag. They either got it and they were completely on board or, and they didn't need to be like TJX, does not, you know, really innovation is not their byword, but they have no problem writing a check to support it because they want to make sure that they're on the front end of whatever's going to disrupt them, right? They're smart about that. And then you had a whole slew of corporates who I won't name who just looked at me like fear in headlights and said, no, I think we've got this figured out. Like, okay. So we built this ecosystem and what's turned, what's happened is, and we were predicting the demise of the department store back in 15. We were predicting the demise of just retail in general, that it hadn't changed in a hundred years, and it was going to be up for major change. And when it changed, it was going to be a bloodbath. And sure enough, COVID has kind of made that
1: happen. So let me interrupt you there, uh, if I can, because th- that's a good segue. W- why do you think that retailers? And and you know, I think I've told you this before. You know, I've seen your presentations a few times, and you, there's one slide that you use. Uh, that always resonates with me. It's a black and white shot of a department store from I don't know thirty, forty <laughs> 50 years ago. You know, right. stacks of product. You know, on on tables. And and in fact, you know, it is the same way today. And you know, you use that for the effect of hey, geez, retail really hasn't changed very much. But you know, retailers and there's a lot of really good ones. There have been smart people come through it. Why is it that they have been so slow to react? And then I'll have a follow on about. It. COVID?
0: So here's what's going on. First of all, it's a generation of executives that did not grow up digital. It's the first problem. And the first actually CEO that's even close to that is Hal Lawton over a tractor supply. So that's the first thing. They don't have a history of digital. They don't have a history of digital first. So they don't—they didn't understand Amazon for years. I mean, isn't it ironic that Target used to use Amazon as their backend for yep. e-commerce? Yep. And that's just, that's mind-blowing to me. You know, that's that's the level of like bizarreness that existed in the retail landscape. So they didn't understand anything of what was going on in deep And the second thing was Wall Street. They were, they were playing to Wall Street and they were playing the, you know, kind of uh, growth game by opening up more stores. That's the way you you grew. You didn't really make your store better, you just grew more stores. And so you had very meager kind of comp store over store growth, but you had more stores and so it looked better. So it was a very bad model because ultimately that's just a recipe for disaster once the once a crisis hits, which of course it did. The third is that the culture of change and innovation in those organizations is pathetic. Some are doing much better than others, most are doing it very badly. And that is they don't understand The innovator's dilemma. They need to read the book. They need to absorb it. And they need to understand that if you're not willing to sacrifice some profitability for longer term gain, you will never innovate because you're always optimizing for profit and you're not optimizing for growth and innovation. And so what happens is you are late. You know, you've been so optimized on merchandising, getting the store like perfectly laid out that the idea that the store is irrelevant never crossed their mind. Right. And so we've been preaching that for years, the store is really irrelevant. The store should be many things. It should be, we talk about store to consumer, bringing the store as close to the consumer as possible, because the most valuable asset in the world is time, not money. And the retailers don't understand that. They think drawing them into the store is just normal. No, it's not. Their bar, the bar is getting higher and higher as to what is what we call the customer contract. Customer contract basically says, I will give you something in return. You give me something. The customer contract for retail had been, I will drive to your store and I will get an assortment of product that I cannot get anywhere else. Well, guess what? Online hits first and foremost. And so now I'm, well, I can get this online. Well, well, do I really care? I mean, behavior changes slowly, so I'll keep going into a store. Then COVID hits. I was like, I don't have a choice. I've got to buy online. Hey, guess what? Buying online is not such a bad experience. I'll never go back.
1: So stay with that thought on on COVID. So, in all that, with so many people that I've talked to, you know, there's so many aspects of of retailers' business that they thought about. They hemmed and hawed. They couldn't get it on their roadmap. Now COVID hits, and you know, curbside pickup and so many other things became um, immediate requirements. And they figured out how to uh, be innovative or rig it so that they can actually get it done. What what have you seen and the reaction from retail during COVID that's either impressed you? or shocked you that it's been so bad
0: well you know no it's more what's obvious so best buy 80 they did 80 percent of their volume with the stores closed what does that tell you about the value of a store zero (laughs) there's no value to a store if they're not waking up and saying oh my god why do we have these big boxes what do we need all this stuff for they're not, if they're not waking up to that, then they're doomed to failure because that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But my guess is they're stepping back and saying, wait a minute, we just did all this volume with marketing and digital and pick up curbside? So the value of the store was location. That's what we always say. The value of a store is proximity, not size. Because assortment, is only valuable if you're inside the store, right? Because then you can walk around and buy multiple things. And that's the whole argument. The other thing that really used to piss me off, and we would talk about this from a store experience, because that's the second. So stores, store to consumers for a store to, as experience was about optimizing for time, not wasting time. And so most retailers built these labyrinth stores that no one could figure out how to navigate. The idea being, well, if we keep them there long enough, they'll spend more. No, if they keep there long enough, I'll get really pissed off as a customer. Right. Again, not understanding the value of time and its proximity. And they were arguing, no, we can just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So Best Buy now looks at it and says, they're not saying, holy cow, we just saved this customer massive amounts of time. They buy the thing online, they pick it up the curbside, they drive away. It's a perfect world. Why do we need, you know, showrooms? We can have a showroom, but why do we need inventory sitting on floors and Why don't we just have, you know, online and offline showrooms? So what COVID proved is that the customer is far more resilient and adaptive. And there are many more choices for the customer than there ever was before. And that's very powerful. That's really, really powerful. And that is what retailers have not figured out is customers have choice. You know, we talked about omni channel for years and blah, 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 blah. Ami, it's not really Ami channel. If I start online and I end up in the store, no retailer knows who I am. Zero. That's Ami channel. True Ami channel or multi-channel, whatever you want to call it, is no matter where I am, if I'm a loyal Best Buy or Bed Bath Beyond or pick Walmart customer, and I've already logged in on the e- on the e-commerce site and I'm scrolling around looking at stuff, if I've logged in, that's another whole question. And now I go into a store. Why don't they know who I am?
1: Right. Exactly. They're
0: trying. They're trying, but they're not. They're not. They're not putting enough time into it. They're not putting enough effort
1: into it. So with with where we are today, and and with you know seemingly every day another bank uh, bankruptcy in in retail, and all the things that you've seen either before COVID or after COVID, what's your your view of retail? Where is it going to go? So I think there's multiple
0: answers. It's striations. Um, first of all, the barbell effect is definitely in play. It's going to be luxury and it's going to be off price. Everything in between. Good luck, um, because that's also the way our classes are going. Unfortunately, demographics and our economics are: the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, and we're not really fixing that. So you know, if you look at wallet, you don't you just don't have options here, right? The idea that there's this middle class going to Macy's. It's just so so outdated right now and, and not statistically valid that if you're a Macy's, you better re- redefine yourself. So maybe you just go completely off price and that's a tougher business because you're competing with TJX house. So I won't tell Macy's what to do, but I will say this stores will get smaller because you don't need as, you don't need as many um, or you need many, but you don't need them as big because really what you really want to do is showcase product that people can come in touch, feel, walk out and buy or, immediately buy and have a drop ship to them. If it's emergency essentials, of course, then you have pickup and pickup curbside. So you can have multiple pickup options, but you don't need literally stacks of merchandise, you know, racked to the ceiling anymore. Just unnecessary. I mean, Bed Bath & Beyond, do you know how many coffee makers they have in their store? Like 20 or something ridiculous. It's like, why do I need all these coffee makers? There's probably, again, this is a, this idea that more is better. No, less is more. Get me the, the cheapest one, the most you know, kind of like Consumer Reports, right? You can have, they have the example of the the most uh, economical, or and then they've got the preferred, right? Everything else in between is like a waste of time. So retailers don't understand that, and they haven't gotten there. So if you're, but then I'd say it's by category. So if you're in apparel, you should be moving to an on-demand manufacturing model because the whole manufacturing cycles are a complete joke. I mean, COVID's proving that better than anyone, which is. If you were really building on demand and supplying literally every four or five weeks, you'd have much lower inventory levels. But they don't. They make big buys, they're big seasonal buys, they 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 go out to market, they have this whole kind of approach that's not digital at all. It's not the way the consumer thinks. So they're stuck with a lot of inventory. Whereas if you're super nimble and you're placing small buys constantly and you're constantly iterating on those buys, you're not stuck with a lot of inventory. You know, and then then I think in in luxury, luxury is going to be fine because brands are valuable. You know, if you're a Chanel or you're a Hermes or you're any of these better, you know, scarce brands, there's always money for those people. People will always spend money on those brands. and I mean, some new brands perhaps, but, and then what you're going to see is more direct stores. Nikes of the world are going to go much more direct over time. It's just inevitable. I mean, Foot Locker's got a big presence in a lot of malls and a very... They're doing their best to be relevant and pertinent and short-term that'll be true. But it's Nike is the brand, not Foot Locker, right? You're buying Nikes. You're not buying Foot Lockers. So it's only a matter of time before the direct, and we believe this strongly that the direct uh, to consumer model will completely take over wholesale, that it will be wholesale. will will It'll be either a marketplace with no assets, right? So the Farfetch is, or the Amazon marketplace where essentially they're just crowding the, the website with product, or it'll be really highly vertical brands. You know, think of a Vineyard Vine store, a Chanel store, a Hermes store. You know, you don't see, you know, distribution's gonna be far more restricted in a, in a luxury channel, and it'll be far more variegated in the uh, mass or off-price channel.
1: The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Uh, let's take a step back to XRC. Um, sure. Guide me a, a bit on the the kinds of companies that um, you decide to invest in. Um, are they particular? Um, most of them obviously are in the retail space. Some of them are software as a service. Some of them are product driven. Give us a, a perspective on the uh, the realm of products.
0: Yeah, so we try to we break it out into a, a couple of categories. First of all, there's the whole consumer products world. Um, these are products, not technologies for the most part. Then you have, we call them consumer products that are embedded with technology. And that's in the area we call consumerization of healthcare, where um, healthcare services will be delivered via products in, in a retail or home based setting. And it could be cardiac monitoring, it could be orthodontics, it could be um, an, anemia testing, hemoglobin testing, diabetes. There's all kinds of tests and diagnoses that involves some product and some service. We do a lot and then we, in the retail sector, when we just think about retail in general, like broader retail, think of the entire value chain. You have supply chain. So all the manufacturing and supply chain automation we're involved with, So on-demand manufacturing, 3D manufacturing, uh, autonomous drones for supply chain visibility and tracking in warehouses, especially. AI to monitor labor movement in these warehouses and and, and manufacturing locations to try to build uh, better heuristics and better labor practices. Um, and then as you move to kind of fulfillment or into in stores, we have this, these companies are doing um, in-mall logistics or managing logistics in kind of a hybrid between the malls and the consumer and the manufacturers. Um, and then we're doing technologies in store so we have a couple of technology stacks in store one can using scent using cameras existing cameras can actually understand what people are touching picking up and buying so you actually get a full merchandising round trip like you would digitally running around from you know impression through conversion and then doing it around loss prevention so anything in the store we're and then clienteling we're doing stuff in that area so all that store activity and then the front of store all the e-commerce work We've done a bunch of work and continue to work uh, loyalty. We're doing identity. We're doing AI around product selection and assortments. So it's really a wide cast, you know, if you think about the entire, but we're very retail and consumer goods focused. And what we're not doing is clinical healthcare. We're not doing blockchain for blockchain sake. We're not doing FinServe. We'll do FinServe as it relates to retail, but we won't do FinServe for FinServe's sake. Right. So there's just some limitations as to what we're doing. By scoping it, we limit ourselves, but also that limit is actually makes us very deep and knowledgeable in the space. And what's also, as a result of that, it's attracted corporates who really value the thought leadership that we're providing. And Wall Street now really values it because now we've done conferences with RBC, World Bank of Canada, um, UBS. We're now doing one with Jeffries, we're gonna do one with Stiffle. And they really want to hear this kind of innovation story at the startup level uh, in, in our sector, right? So again, we're not, we're not trying to be all things to all people.
1: Right. And so when you accept somebody into your uh, incubator, what, what structure do you put around them? You know, I've, I've participated as a mentor, but, you know, describe a little bit, you know, the help that you provide uh, these companies.
0: Well, again, like you have a full cycle on retail, you have a full cycle of a startup. So it's everything from branding and customer identification using design thinking principles to help them understand who their customer is, to building the appropriate content of one pagers and sales material to communicate that value to the outside world, um, websites and all that like. So again, we break out B2C, you know, business-to-consumer versus business-to-business, business, because those are two different categories. And they have slightly different needs. Uh, the business-to-business business category tends to get a lot of corporate partner affiliations and connections and communication and pilot opportunities uh, going. Uh, a lot of presentations to corporates, conferences. We bring these startups out. We do road shows, and what we call corporate uh, presentation days. We were doing that, obviously, until COVID. And so it gives the corporate executives visibility into what's going on in the innovation landscape. And on the consumer side, we do a whole growth plan for them. So we not only help them on the branding and the messaging front, but also help them manage their growth metrics and then make, them, make it clear what the benchmarks are for forward investment and what funds and investors are gonna be really interested in them and then how to prepare them for those conversations.
1: All right. And, and so, you know, this is a portfolio that you're building. You said it's very, very, very early stage. Uh, talk about some of the successes uh, of companies that have come through XRC.
0: The, the biggest success so far is Billy, the um, razor company that uh, was a female shaver product. We were their first investor and their third largest. They just sold to um, Procter and Gamble um, and we'll close. The second, you know, we've got a number that are doing really well that haven't exited yet. Some of them are fairly uh, late in the uh, investment cycle. So in fund six, we've got a couple of companies that have done phenomenally well. OrthoFX, uh, their valuations are through the roof. That um, They're the ones in the orthodontics play. We're doing really well in e-commerce with a number of companies that are growing nicely. Um, and then we have a lot of failures. I mean, it's just the way it works, right? I mean, it's just what's going to happen. So we're really pleased it is it's tracking exactly as we thought in terms of the number of companies that are getting their series A's or, or exits going on. And we've told the investors that, you know, because we're so early that we're probably two to three years earlier than a seed investor in many cases, which means if it's if the seed investment takes you know, eight to ten years to exit, we're the equivalent of 10 years to 12, right? But our investment dollars are so small. And so varied that we don't really run the risk. No one loss makes a huge difference to us. It's, it's trivial dollars because um, we only invest $100,000 in any one company.
1: All right. right. You, you've, uh, you, you've talked quite a bit about diversity um, of founders. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've had quite a lot of uh, women founders, people of color. You know, talk a little bit about that and how important it is to balance uh, the, the founder population.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we're super, you know, I can't say it was intentional.
1: I, I wish I could say, oh,
0: you know, I'm actually glad we can't say we have a mandate to do X or Y or Z. What we have found is that if you're effectively blind, which we are, to race, creed, color, um, you just look for the best people, period. And The category we're in in, leans in heavily into more diverse populations. So just quickly, I'll give you some stats. 57% of all the companies have a female founder. 42% have a female CEO, which is way over indexed compared to the market. 36% have a person of color as a founder. And 35% have a person of color as a CEO. Again, way over the mark. And then it just in terms of our team, over 64% of the team is female and 36% are people of color. So, you know, by any stretch or measurement, we're just much more diverse naturally. We just don't care about that. You know, you know, We don't have a bias that way. We're just really looking for great founders. And because we're so early, we don't bake that bias into any of our, our decision-making. Never have.
1: Gotcha. That's great. That's great. <laughs> So we're coming down to the end of, uh, of our time together. Uh, at the end of the show, Pano, I, uh, ask uh, each of the guests seven uh, questions, uh, kind of rapid fire, give uh, a couple of word answers. Uh, that's all that's required. Okay. Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, a brand that you admire or that inspires you. I think Lululemon's done a phenomenal job in that respect. Uh, me too. Love that. Uh, what's your favorite app on your phone?
0: Well, it used to be Hotel Tonight when I was traveling
1: um,
0: because I could book a room in, a, in like a, in a second. Uh, I don't travel nearly as much anymore, so it's not an issue. All
1: right. Uh, what's the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from?
0: Um, I bought shoes from Red, Red Wing.
1: Okay. Red Wing. Uh, something that you're not good at, but you wish that you were.
0: I'd like to be a better golfer than I am. <laughs> but I don't have the time for it
1: join the club well I, I'm, I'm proving it. it doesn't matter how much time you I, have. actually
0: I'll give you a better one than that though I actually would love I would like to have been a better manager fortunately I have a COO who's a great manager I'm not a great manager of people again that's that gets back to that solitary tennis player mentality yep um, sure. and I'm I'm very honest with the team about that it's just never been an area of strength for me Unfortunately, I've get I have folks around me now who are much better at it and manage a
1: team much more effectively. Okay, a charitable organization that you're passionate about?
0: Golly, day, there's a bunch. I love the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I really like. There's a footwear company that I'm super passionate about in kind of putting shoes on children's feet. I'm super excited about. Yeah, I I spend a lot of time in the nonprofit world. So that you could get me started, I could go on for hours. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's great. If you had one superpower, what would it be?
0: I'd I'd like to be able to be more patient. I don't think I'm patient enough.
1: Okay, pa- not patient, not a good manager. All right, it's all coming out now, Pano. <laughs> no, I'm an
0: I'm an entrepreneur. I'm like I go after stuff. Right, I'm kind of crazy that way.
1: And then the last one, other than your family, um, what's your most prized possession?
0: So this is going to sound funny. I have a 1997 Land Cruiser
1: um, that I've
0: restored. I just love the I love the the unit. Um, it's not that old, but it's old enough to require a lot of care and feeding. And I just love the design of the of the car. It's just a classic, and um, they don't make them anymore. Yep. So this style. So it's just something I, I I miss. I enjoy.
1: Great. And if if people wanted to reach out to you on on social media, what's the best way for them to uh, contact you?
0: I email pano at xrclabs.com. That works.
1: Okay, great. Look, Pano, thank you very much for your time and your insights. Uh, I, I know that uh, you've got a lot going on and uh, you know, a lot of companies are uh, relying on your time and 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 good insights about the future of retail. So thanks for sharing your thoughts with us and and I hope you and your family stay well and, and I'll see you soon.
0: You as well, Mark. Thank you very much.
1: That's it. Today's game ball goes to Pano Anthos for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, new companies should never fail because of a lack of resources and support. There's a wide array of people that can be helpful, either mentors, investors, or other early-stage founders. There are all kinds of tools available, Slack channels and online groups, just to name a few. It can certainly be overwhelming, but it does not need to be lonely if you're a founder. Number two. If you're running a business, early stage or otherwise, you often have to sacrifice some profitability for long-term gain in order to innovate. If you're only optimizing for profit, you'll never take the calculated risks that are required to be innovative. So many retailers over the years have not spent enough time or resources being innovative, either with their services, their product offerings, or their technology. Number three, retailers are product and brand-centric, but true marketing using customer data and technology eludes so many retailers. A true omni-channel experience is one where if a customer is logged into a retailer site and then walks into a physical store, that retailer knows the person's in the store and can quickly tailor experience to the customer. Certainly, we must deal with the privacy issues around these types of experiences, but the ability to execute is there. Now we just need the dedication to provide a better shopping trip. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Details Interact, and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.